0: Welcome to Faith, Reason, and Geekdom. I'm Roger. And I'm Dusty. My brothers and sisters in Christ join us every Thursday as we work out these three perspectives in our everyday lives.
1: Yeah, uh, Raj, I, I hear we, we have a pretty cool guest today. Oh,
0: cooler than a popsicle on a Eskimo. No, I'm not going gonna- <laughs> to to come up with something like on an nope. Eskimo's backpack while he's in the Himalayan. No, that's horrible. That's a- I'm just going to quit while I'm at it. Yes. I'm so excited. Pat Flynn. He's a self-proclaimed try-hard writer, philosopher, business, fitness coach have the Pat Flynn Show, award-winning writer, author, trainer of special forces. That's interesting. I want to get into that. Professional athletes. Also, people like me who are not athletes, the opposite. Academically, you have a background in economics and a master's in philosophy. And while you're not doing all of that stuff, which is uh, uh, it's uh not that much stuff, if you have time, you will do your music, you were doing so much stuff.
1: You wow. know, that's the, actually one of my favorite things about him. Um, there's a term that's thrown around. Well, not so much these days, but I guess I'm old school. They call it a Renaissance man. Uh, and a Renaissance man is somebody who is really good at a lot of things, not just one thing. You know, a lot of times we raise our kids to like, be good at one or two things. But Pat talks about uh this term generalism which is being very good at a great many number of things rather than the best at just one of them and that's one of the things that i really like about him and uh ladies and
2: gentlemen please welcome uh mr fellow catholic pat flynn gentlemen that was all way too kind thank you so much (laughs) it's a it's a pleasure to be with you today and
1: not only that but actually new dad again for the fifth time as of
2: yesterday so As of amazing. yesterday, well, I could I couldn't miss the podcast with you two, could I? No, my um, gosh, that's so no, great! Yeah, Thank but you. but uh, no, beautifully and by by God's good grace, uh, Briga Magdalena was born yesterday, and beautiful, we did the we did to, we did the home birth, and it was such a great experience. My wife is a total total champion at this at this point, so. Uh, everything was just smooth and wonderful and, and beautiful. In fact, interestingly enough, she, she had what's called a mermaid birth or a birth on call. I'm not sure okay. if you guys have, have heard is this of this, it's an but underwater it, thing. What is this? No, it's where uh, she came out in a, in a fully intact amniotic sac. So, oh, wow. Yeah. It's crazy. I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently it happens around one in every 80,000 births. And there's all sorts of <laughs> superstition around it. Like it's a sign that she'll have uh should be clairvoyant or have great wisdom or something but anyway it was That's cool. Yeah, I it was like really that. cool. Yeah. You have so much stuff going on and like
0: you do the kettlebell workouts. You're yeah. big on fitness and like you have the physique of a fitness model. I <laughs> on the other hand have the physique of a hand model which is to say <laughs> nothing to see and, here and, not and like a face yours. for radio right? I got <laughs> the face go. for radio. Yeah. yeah. So this is so good because you're about the body, right? We're not just like some people. I think that's a problem that gets us into all the stuff in our cultures where we think the soul, even some Christians think this, like the soul, that's the real us. We're trapped inside and we can do whatever we want with the body, whether it's a manichaeism or any of like, oh, the body's just, a, we're a, a ghost trapped in a shell. So the body doesn't matter. Therefore, you can kind of just soul hop around and oh, now I'm this, now I'm that. But mm-hmm. you're, so you're big on the body because we're body so composite. You're big on health. Like, how is it working with with these top notch special forces guy training and doing workouts like that? Like,
2: yeah. So let me give a little background because it, it seems like I'm so disjointed everything I do, but there's actually somewhat of a coherent story to it. So when I was going to college, uh, first off, I grew up, grew up very out of shape, overweight and in high school. I wanted to start getting my act together. So I started doing martial Arts. My background is Taekwondo. And that led me to weightlifting. And then I got into kettlebells uh, from one of my coaches. And then I just really started training people in college. And I always had my blog and I always blogged about everything that interested me philosophy, economics, and fitness. But as it happened, the fitness stuff sort of just kind of took off. You know, people didn't care about my philosophy and really probably till I became Catholic, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But they cared about the fitness stuff. And uh, I got some some book deals and like that kind of became uh, my career in, in business. In, in and even though my formal education is not related to that at all. I mean, I got my certifications and I study very hard, right? To make sure I know what I'm talking about. But it's just, that's how that happened, right? Um, okay. So then, yeah, throughout the, I kind of got uh, very, you know, deeply entrenched in this sort of kettlebell and tactical fitness world. So I'd be brought down to places like camp Lejeune to train special forces stuff like that. I haven't done that in a number of years because really I've been out of the in-person stuff for many years and just doing all business online digitally. But I have, yeah, tons of different types of online clients from people who are like Olympic athletes, like Olympic handball players and military. And then just, you know, just people just, just like me, just home with a bunch of kids and one efficient workouts. Uh, so what is it like? It's cool. It's fun, man. Um, I don't know, you know, uh, I I love working especially with military because they're just so disciplined and focused. They're so yeah. So, I bet know. that's
0: yeah. I thought that was so interesting. And what I have to bring this up is because you're a contributor to the Word on Fire and Catholic Answers, which are two of the biggest catholic media like those are like i that's where i first saw you is on catholic answers and then you were writing blogs doing stuff working with word on fire bishop Barron. i mean that, yep. those pretty big those two pillars right there those are big pillars word on fire and catholic answers how is that that must be pretty awesome
2: yeah it's 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 really cool so um how did i get linked up i i, I just wrote some stuff for a while And uh, somebody at Word on Fire discovered it, uh, Father Steve, uh, who who became a good friend of mine because he's also super into fitness and he sort of invited me to contribute content there. So that's how that started. And they've always been awesome and and super gracious to work with. So I have a number of articles with them. And then uh, Catholic Answers, um, kind of kind of similar thing. I I forget what the initial connection was, but I I started doing just sort of articles, freelance articles for them. Uh, Nothing like no formal ongoing engagement. They seem to like it, and then they offered me to come aboard as on a new program that they call their affiliate apologist, um, which is now I'm just w- more committed to to their organization, and I'm kind of an extension of it, right? Because I live in Wisconsin, they're in San Diego, so rather than like a, a full time thing, which would just not be realistic for me, they made this this hybrid thing, and I love working with them, man. Um, they're so great because they they kind of give me the space to develop my ideas, which is not always. You know, writing for kind of more popular, because uh, most of the writing I do is, is, is more academic, but writing for a more popular space, which I think is really important because nobody reads the academic stuff, right? Just aside from other academics, so it doesn't make as much of an impact sometimes. Writing for a popular space can be difficult because they always want to shorten and I don't want to say dumb down, but kind of, right? Um, so it can be kind of frustrating. Like, no, uh, Catholic Answers is not like that. They, they have this, this great way. Of, of finding that right balance between accessibility, but still making sure you're getting your, your argument out there properly. And I, I really appreciate that. Great editors, such a great crew, I mean, of, of people that are inspiring in so many ways in their spiritual life, in their intellectual life. I mean, you mentioned Trent Horn. Awesome. I Jimmy have like Hick a bunch Hick. of his
0: books, Jimmy. Jimmy, I, um, Trent Horn. I have like all almost all his books. He has like a lot. what, what like forty six books now. He, he's a prolific writer, Trent Horn yep. man.
2: Yeah, Trent's Trent's awesome. And I, what I love about the um, about Catholic Answers and what really attracted me to want to work with them too is, I mean, they're they're so great. They're so loving, and they all love the Lord so much. But they're also willing to engage those hard cultural issues, right? But they're always mm-hmm. doing it with the right tone, which is important, right? And, and you know, always doing it um in charity with grace but they're not afraid to back away i mean especially with the rose stuff i mean they kind of brought out all the team to do to do pro-life apologetics and arguments and, and i love that because so many people are just they don't, they don't want to stay away from the hot button yeah, issues exactly. but i mean come on guys this is these are the yeah these, these are the times these yeah. are the times these are the battles so i love love that they're willing to do that and they do it well, but they do it, I think in always in charity and a grace in a way that is as attractive as possible too. So yeah, nothing but but great things to, to say about it. So so Patrick, l-
1: let's talk about this because uh, as I understand it, you have an interesting story of how you sort of converted or reconverted to Catholicism. Yes. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that. We love talking, you know, our, our show, our audience is, is made up of, of people who aren't necessarily um, I mean, we have the whole spectrum of people, right, but there's a whole bunch of us, and we sort of view the Catholic Church as not um, a greater than thou place where you got to be holy, no, we're, we're in the middle of a hospital, there's a lot of different great stories and and survival and, and stories that give us strength, wisdom and hope, what's yeah. your
2: story? Yeah, okay, well I'll give the condensed version and then we can dive into any aspect. In more detail if you want um so it it, so you said convert versus revert i've often said there needs to be like a new term something in between those two because there's a lot of people who are like me that um were baptized we were baptized catholic but we never were really brought up in the faith never had a proper religious formation exactly i think when i think of a revert i think of somebody who was who was you know at least catechized to some extent and then maybe became protestant and then came back or something like that um, but there's a whole class of people of my generation that really just had no religious upbringing whatsoever, even if they were baptized um, and then and then came into the church. So whatever that is, that's me, right? Um, revert, I guess is the probably most appropriate technical term, but I, I think a new term should be invented for that. Anyways, long story short, um, I uh, when I was fairly young, I was sort of met with your your general conflict thesis, as it's called often in, in philosophy of religion, and uh, and that is the idea that there's there's some sort of conflict or incompatibility between a sort of scientific worldview and a religious worldview. And the first time I encountered this was in the sixth grade, and. Um, My teacher was outlining the sort of uh, origins uh, of the universe, the general sketch, sketch of Big Bang cosmology, as much Mm. as you can get to sixth graders, which is not very much. But it's enough for you to remember back to like that uh, first grade Sunday school class you went to uh, to realize, like, hey, this seems like a different story. (laughs)
1: Right. right. (laughs)
2: Right. (laughs) Where's the snake? (laughs) Right. Um,
0: (laughs) And now we're going to glue. Little white cotton balls on the lamb. That's
2: like what, you, what you usually get. Right, right? Yeah. So like, you know, you drew pictures of rosary and <laughs> yeah. something like that. Right. Um, so, of course, I didn't have a, a sophisticated theology or understanding of scripture. I just had your cartoon kindergarten theology. Right. But again, it sounds like I'm being presented with two different stories. And at least on the face of it, they seem incompatible. Right. They're just not the same thing. Uh, so you know, in sixth grade, I didn't throw my hands up and say, "That's it, I'm an atheist." But it was a, it was an initial sort of seed of doubt that I think um, led me on a trajectory of uh, certainly thinking and believing that whatever else the religious worldview is, that that's the irrational one, right? That's the that's the one that is. Um, uh, for the, you know, it's fine. You know, people believe that if it makes them feel good and, and stuff like that, but for a rational person, no, he had to be scientifically minded, you see. Um, so that was, yeah, that was an initial sort of seed of doubt, I guess. And then, uh, later on, not much later, but in high school, I started really getting into philosophy and I angled into philosophy from, from actually a couple different, uh, um, other interests of mine, music being one of them, um, into hard rock, heavy metal music, you don't find a lot of outwardly religious Christian people in there. At least you don't initially. Uh, but as it turns out, now I realize that a lot of my favorite musicians are themselves converts. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. But they don't it isn't upfront in the in a lot of their music. So, you know, if anything, you get sort of a lot of anti-religious lyrics, uh, but a lot of philosophical themes, which interested me. And then other writers, I was really into like Mark Twain and people like that, who um were always exploring different philosophical themes. He's got a essay called what is man which is a sort of essay on determinism which really got me kind of thinking in a in a in a more um philosophical way about important issues right um anyways i kind of trail down a, a couple different um paths and eventually i start getting into philosophy sort of proper by being introduced to like your atheist existentialist like nietzsche and those cats um and then yeah that, that was really my my pr- like pull into philosophy was from this sort of naturalistic worldview or naturalistic paradigm. Well, That's
1: interesting to me because we're talking about, it sounds like you were an atheist, not necessarily agnostic. So you were like way out there. The the rubber band was stretched all the way to the other side. What brought you back?
2: Yeah. So yeah, eventually I would have considered myself a philosophical naturalist, which is sort of the most prominent form of of atheism among uh, philosophers. And you essentially think that, whatever else reality is, it's, re- it's reducible to um, the principles of nature, whatever you want to say those are, physics, chemistry, whatever. Um, so yeah, what, what brought me back? Well, what brought me back was going deeper into, as I started really taking philosophy more seriously and studying it, realizing that naturalism is just, um, it, it's really a museum of nonsense. It, it can't make sense of, of reality at all. And on the, on the surface, it might seem like it, it it is a nice, neat, tidy metaphysical package, but it's really not. And so I encountered all these the, all this stubborn data that could not be explained by a naturalistic paradigm, things like consciousness, things like freedom of the will, things like moral facts and moral knowledge. And of course, even the, the big question of why is, there, why is there anything at all? Why is there anything of the type contingent at all rather than nothing? And, uh, and so naturalism either has to sort of stubbornly ignore that data or it has to try and eliminate a lot of that data. Uh, so the, you'll have many naturalists who will, who will just say, well, look, you know, this, this sort of experience or this data, it doesn't, it doesn't actually really fit into our paradigm. So it must be the case that we can replace it or eliminate it altogether. So you'll have people to say like, yeah, whatever else consciousness is, it's just an illusion or free will is just an illusion, right? Uh, right. moral, there are no moral facts or moral values. That's an illusion too. Right. And if, and if you find that, uh, preposterous, if you think that, um, that is an, is is just a, an absolutely incoherent uh, view on its face, and it's certainly uh, performatively absurd. You can never live your life uh, consistently in that framework. Then you might think that there's something wrong with naturalism, uh, which I did. Um, so but where was, where
1: does where does this? Uh, I don't I don't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. yeah you know, no go our, ahead. Our please.
2: podcast is faith,
1: reason, and geekdom. But where this is very reasonable, what you're mm-hmm.
2: telling us. Where does the faith aspect come in? Like where it comes later, yeah. So, um, I did not convert because I was evangelized, or at least not at first. Anyways, uh, this is a purely sort of philosophical journey. I just, I just wanted to know what was true, right? I just wanted to, That's what philosophers uh, should be after, right? Exactly, truth If exactly. you don't want to be, if you don't want to be a sophist. So, at some point, I just threw my hands up and I said, "I don't know what's true." But naturalism definitely ain't it, right? It's this is out. This is out, right? <laughs> And that that's just like atheism broadly for me. Uh, so then I wanted to widen my perspective. I went back to a lot of uh, classical philosophers, well, ones that I was you know vaguely familiar with in my intro to philosophy classes like Aristotle and Plato, but awesome. never got never got like really intimate with. I was also really interested in, OK, maybe I'll take a look at certain religious traditions uh, but not Christianity. That was not on my um, not on my initial radar because I, I held a lot of biases against that still. I wasn't ever like anti-Christian. Sure. I was never one of those um, angry, petulant, yeah. new, new atheist types that like Richard Whoa. Dawkins. And, I was never I was yeah. never like Christopher that. Hitchens. Um, yeah. Never like that. Uh, And and I never had a bad experience with religion or religious people either. And I think that was actually beneficial to me because it didn't, there was never like any great emotional barrier I had to overcome, if that's That's interesting. But anyways, it just, it just, it just didn't occur to me that maybe the faith I brought up in might actually have brought up in, in quotes, right. Might actually be the thing I should look at. So I just looked everywhere else is, is often the case, right. The grass is always greener on the other side type of thing, right. So I start. I become very attracted by the pagan thinkers, uh, Aristotle, Plato, their type of worldview, and also a sort of broad religious pluralism. Um, you know, like a if you read a book by somebody like uh, Aldous Huxley, his perennial philosophy, the idea that hey, all religions are false but also kind of true, right? They're they're all sort of saying things that are pointing towards some transcendent reality, but they're they're not all. They're just not all gay. some truer than are yeah. closer to the truth than others. Right. But but the religious pluralists in a sophisticated form will say that mm-hmm. they're all they are all false in mm. and of themselves, but they're groping towards what the truth actually is. Got so it. pick pick whatever one does it for you. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um. Wow. And you might think that that's actually similar to some uh, forms of Hinduism as well. And I have a very good friend that is is a Hindu. So I was attracted to that um, because you you find good philosophy in those traditions. You do. Uh, And at this point, I was becoming very interested in natural theology, which is sort of philosophical reasoning about God and God's existence, arguments for existence of God. So I became uh, convinced of not just God's existence, but of monotheism and classical theism. And that kind of has a sort of narrowing effect because mm-hmm. you think that if you think that uh, that's true, then anything that doesn't affirm that religiously, like that's, that's, that's definitely wrong. Right. That's it disqualifies it. Yeah, that's disqualified. Right. So I started kind of narrowing in. And at this point this I'm messing a whole bunch of years together. Right. But at some point, I come upon the Thomistic tradition, which are Mm. figures following Thomas Aquinas. And this is really attractive to me for many reasons, not just the arguments for God, but the sort of metaphysical system as a whole. It's so systematic. Uh, You know, metaphysics informs ethics. It all informs philosophical anthropology. It, It all hangs together in a very beautiful, systematic way, which is not the case with many other philosophies. They tend to be disjointed, haphazard, piecemeal. Thomism is really harmonious and systematic uh in 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 its in its approach and i found that extremely attractive and it's also sort of i think a culmination or a completion of um the projects started by thinkers like plato and i I really think of of thomas as being like the, the the last the last great classical philosopher more than the first great medieval philosopher if that makes sense yes um so anyways um you can't spend a lot of time with Thomas without hearing their theology, right, and uh, making you interested in Christianity and, and, and its claims. Uh, so I I become increasingly interested in that, and I start to think, well, is it the case that people like St. Thomas and his followers are so right about so many things, but then like so wrong about this religion thing? Right? <laughs> that would be that'd be kind of a bummer, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so maybe I should maybe I should look into this. Maybe I should give this give this more of a more of a thought, more of a serious thought. And that's when I started to consider Christianity uh, as a whole, but also Catholicism, both more from a philosophical perspective and an historical perspective. And long yeah. story short, you know, I, I find I, as I seriously and honestly investigate it, I find the story to be enormously credible. Historically mm. and philosophically, and also aesthetically, right? There's a there's an aesthetic
0: the beauty, the beauty yes. of Christianity
2: and the that that cannot be overlooked. Point you ask where faith comes in. Yeah, I'm looking uh, for that. I mean, God's God's grace is operative through all of this, of course. Yeah, right. Um, sure. so I'm I'm making it seem like this is some sort of like Spock like deduction from start to finish. No, <laughs> I love it not, though. Right? I love it. This is great. Of course not. So God's grace is operative through through all of this. This is just the path that He was leading me, right? But it was Christmas Eve one night, and um um, my wife, who was never baptized, and she's got her own conversion story, uh, was preparing a feast for us, not because we were celebrating Christian, because we had not come into uh, Christmas, excuse me, because we had not come into the church. But you know, like, like most secular people, you still celebrate the holidays, right? So she's preparing a big feast. And I told her, like, Christine, like, I feel like I need to go to a Catholic mass. I can't explain it. I just feel like I need to go to a Catholic mass, right? And there was this parish Incredible. down the street and it's um it's snowing it's horrible weather i have bad eyesight you see my big glasses right so like i should not be driving and normally i would never go out and pitch black snowy weather it's kind of asking for a death sentence right (laughs) like i just need to do it and she like she's like whatever you do know what she was kind of annoyed right because like she just made this huge family meal and i'm asking to leave wow uh but she was yeah she you know um she's fine you just go do what you need to do and you'll come back and we'll we'll have dinner and Forget this ever happened, right? And so I go to this mass, I sit in this mass, it's it's the most beautiful experience probably of my life. And uh it gets to the Eucharistic prayer. And uh I I'm not a I'm not a big spiritual experience person. I'm just not a big feelings guy. Yeah. Uh, but that was the closest to um uh, if I would be willing to say that that, that was a, a deeply spiritual experience for me, right? There was there was something at that moment, uh that happened inside of me. Right. The, what, what, what was present to you? What, what, the, what, the workings what like? of, uh, of God's and just the, this realizing is true, right? This is, this is it. This is, mm. this is where, this is what I've been looking for and I'm wow, I'm exactly that's fascinating. where I need to be at this point. So at that moment on, I knew that I had to come into the church and I had to bring my wife with me somehow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love her. Right. Which was, which was, it was difficult because she, she did grow up. Uh, in the south and as a secular person in the south uh, she was she did have a very anti-christian bias right yeah Uh, the culture down there can be a little obnoxious sometimes right Uh, like people would throw like bibles into her car window and stuff oh damn oh my (laughs) goodness just like not just like utter lack of social awareness of how to approach people about things right so she was very off put and like talk of rapture and her being stolen away and being a slave (laughs) of satan when she was a kid like you can't blame her for being off put by a lot of this stuff. Right. So she, she had a a deep emotional bias, but you know, I, she was curious about, because I kind of drug her into atheism. Right. And then I come out of it and she's kind of, you know, I guess she doesn't think (laughs) where are we going here? What's going on? He's like, wait, hold on. You brought me to like this nihilistic pit and now you're, becoming religious what and so what is she, she, and she's told her story a million times so i'm not saying anything she hasn't said herself but she was angry about that she was actually angry about that um but still curious um so you know i talked to her about it as, as much as i could but understood that she needed her own space for investigation that i this isn't something that i could um force her to do right the best i could do is just try to lead by example. And she later said that she saw the transformation that happened to me. It happened to me, especially as a father for my conversion, that, that, that more than anything really opened her up to wanting to have a look. So long story short, uh, she goes through her Mm -hmm. own profound conversion experience, comes in, gets baptized, confirmed. And here we are on this podcast, a number of years, many years later, I guess at this point, (laughs) not that many years later, this actually wasn't all that. I think she was confirmed just four years ago. So it wasn't that that many years ago yeah mm-hmm. and that eucharist called the the church you i've go. heard that
0: i've heard yeah the well eucharist, listen, hey, the adoration
1: it, it lands calls right in it lands right in my backyard roger yeah. you know kira kira who's my most important person mm-hmm. um had a very similar experience she she had run around to different christian churches and had explored all kinds of stuff even um spiritual dance stuff and yeah. all, all kinds of stuff yeah hippie girl And she comes to a a religious retreat that I I was helping to organize. We were very early on in our dating and I invited her to this retreat and she comes to adoration during the retreat. Mm -hmm. And she had an experience that sounds very familiar, very similar to Pat's incredible. And that Eucharist, that, that, that being in the presence of Mm -hmm. God um, is something that for audience members who have not really experienced that, you know, like you, Pat, I also uh, was raised Catholic, but I didn't really know my faith until I was older. And we've talked about that. And Roger and I have talked about that on the podcast. But but the reality is, and this is an opportunity I see to invite people to go to adoration and just be there quiet and mm-hmm. listen with your heart. And you will probably find something similar as well. Uh, it's a very, very powerful thing. That brings us to god 's existence, Pat. I know that you have some really amazing, given this background this 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 all this theology and this logic and and the experience you have some very good uh, arguments for several things that we want to tackle. The first one is that god 's existence what Where are you with that
2: yeah well i 'm writing uh, two books on it one 's done um, <laughs> The second one with sophia is 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 still in, is still in process. So where am I at with that? Well, I mean, I'm convinced of it. Um, certainly, right? I think uh, arguments, philosophical arguments for the existence of God, are as good as any argument can get in philosophy. And I think, in fact, that we have what might be called metaphysical demonstrations for God. And the idea between a metaphys, the idea behind a metaphysical demonstration, is that you start with some aspect of experience that is essentially undeniable, right? That there are contingent things, or that there are changing things, something that really can't be coherently denied. And then you work out through a series of entailments that the necessary and sufficient condition for that would have to be something that has the attributes that classical theists um, describe as God. And so I, I think that the, the arguments for God are, are logically tight in a way that it's really hard to get out of them. Um, uh, certainly, they're uh, they're compelling in the sense that that anybody who's willing to look in them with open mind, I think, will find them extremely moving as I did. Now, I always like to set the appropriate expectations because if somebody wants to be skeptical and turn up that skeptical dial, people can deny anything, right? Like we've talked about before, right? It's people who deny that even they exist, that themselves exist, right? So so the way I like to phrase it is, if you, if you give me a handful of very plausible assumptions, I can show you from there how, how God exists. And if you think that these assumptions are plausible, maybe even undeniable, then you have you have good reason to believe in the existence of God. I also like to just tell people that I think God is the best and simplest explanation for a wide range of data and human experience. Everything from why there's something rather than nothing, why are there are any contingent things at all. We can talk about that argument if you guys want why there's consciousness, why there's rationality, why there are moral facts, why there's moral knowledge. Those two things are distinct, right? Why there are near-death experiences, why there's mystical experiences, religious experiences, why there are so many well-attested, scientifically verified miracle claims. And of course, the entire historical data surrounding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all, all that is just the sort of thing you would expect if God exists. None of that at all, I think, is is what you would expect if God does not exist. So very modestly, we can say the evidential case for the existence of God is extremely powerful. And then, of course, you have to try and deal with certain anomalies like the problem of evil and stuff like that. But I think those can be handled as well. So, yeah, there's a, there's an opening gambit. We can go deeper into any of that stuff that you guys yeah, want. Mm-hmm. It's um, like
0: earlier when you're talking, even right now, but then when you're talking about Thomism and, of course, God's grace. But that's similar to how I came up. It's like the intellectual part and I was kind of getting like, mentally aroused while you were talking about Tobias and (laughs) Plato and Aristotle was like oh yeah Cicero and that led me is like is there a god and I started going down that Cicero Aristotle Augustine all these different things started reading Trent Horn books all of Trent Horn books and all this stuff and that really got me and it's people now that knew me back then they're like what you weren't into any of this because I didn't really know philosophy I was like wow I didn't think people think like this I always when I was younger I always used to think weird things I was like oh how is my hand moving what is this body and nobody really thought about that you're a philosopher and, man Those yeah are the questions i didn't philosophers know. ask right i mm-hmm. was like there's people out there oh it's called philosophy people are people annoyed by me because then i'll be like well uh see aristotle would say in the Nicomachean ethics that uh uh we are a political animal and all this stuff <laughs> like, like what are you <laughs> quoting we used to even have this game with one of my friends he's like every time you say aristotle somebody has to take a shot and that was a game because I was <laughs> right, like, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Aristotle in the Summa Theologiae would say, or Cicero would clearly state that, in, you know, and all this. So I started getting all like that, like almost like the when you have the conversion. And then, of course, the faith came a little bit later for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, God, but like, the Preparatory more grace. yes, I was like, oh, I got to be with people. You mean I got to love people? I can, <laughs> Why can't I just have my books? Let me just get my Nicomachean <laughs> Ethics at Summa and that's it. So that
2: took that if hey man, if you could just have two, that's not a bad selection. Right. Exactly, right.
0: Yeah. Right. Like if you're on a lonely island, that's all. Mm-hmm. But you know what else? It's I feel that kindred spirit uh, with you. And I think we all three have that renaissance man kind of like that spirit of generalism like because right. i dabble yes. like in script writing writing novels doing this podcast nice. wanting to make movies doing apologetics mm-hmm. i love so i want to do speaking engagements a lot of things and i thought i was the only one and then i read and uh, met another renaissance man the two-time emmy nominated producer screenwriter <laughs> movie dusty you're you're in hollywood you're doing your uh talent agent in hollywood all this stuff, awesome. directing mm-hmm. making move all this general stuff wall street all this different things and then you another renaissance man's coming in have you seen doctor strange 2 the multiverse of madness if you is it, have, is it worth seeing i i say it is i like the
2: first one i did it's not a see good. the second one mm-hmm.
0: i would recommend it there's a lot of crazy things but in the multiverse of Madness, it's sam raimi
2: isn't it yes it, exactly yes, it it's okay. very
0: horror like it's a very evil ish. because if so yes. then i'll dig it yes, okay. yes it's yes. very uh-huh. evil dead but in that version the multiverse of madness like i'm the version of you that never got off the couch it's like oh I'm God. about to get off <laughs> and turn off the TV, but then a new episode of like 90 Day Fiance comes on and I sit back down. But I'm trying, right. I'm changing that now. I'm starting with this podcast. I'm gonna finish all the other projects. So I- I'm 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 gonna start now.
2: Good for you, man. God bless you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, man. We I love that because people used to be like, man, nah, Roger, you're always into this and you're into that and you're into that, you're into all these different things. And I'm like, and then I meet you two. And it's like, we have that same spirit of like, I want to be into this because you were into um, training people like the special forces, you were training people that have military background, you were doing workout, you're the Chronicles of Fitness, you do kettlebell training, you do right. fitness, you do mm-hmm. business, you do all these different things. And it's so crazy and so good to meet people with the same Kendrick spirit. And so that I agree with you with that uh, philosophy. Me personally, I like the uh, argument from contingency. Right. So mm-hmm. if you're going to kind of go into that a little bit about yeah. the argument, yeah.
2: For sure. Okay. Yeah. So let me give the general sketch of it. Then we can go into, first off, thank you for all that. That's super yeah. fascinating, by the way. And then, yeah, then we can go into some details. So what does the contingency argument say? Well, it starts again from a, from a, an experiential data point that we think is really obvious, right? That we can't mm-hmm. coherently deny. And that's that there are contingent things and a mm-hmm. contingent thing is something that exists, but doesn't have to exist or yeah. could have, could have been otherwise. Right. Uh, contingent literally means to kind of like hang upon or be dependent mm-hmm. upon. Right. So I'm a contingent thing, right. There's a point when Pat Flynn wasn't here. Yeah, I like to think it was a much bleaker world, uh, but <laughs> yeah. anyways, then I, then, then now I am here. Right. Um, so St. Thomas has an explanation. Of contingency, actually. And he thinks that things are contingent insofar as their essence, their, their whatness, what they are, their what determination, right, is not identical to their existence, their weather determination. So it's important to understand that uh, this is one of the assumptions that, I, that I, I talk about that's often not emphasized enough in the, the Thomistic system. St. Thomas holds what's called a constituent ontology right? So he thinks that we are sort of composite beings on a metaphysical level, right? We're composites of essence and existence, right? That my whatness being a a rational animal, right? Does not entail my existence. If it did, then I would be a necessary existent. I would have to exist no matter what, which is clearly false, right? So he holds this, this theory of what's called a real distinction between the essence and existence between any contingent being, finite being, right? And he's got a whole bunch of other arguments for it, but it's obvious from the fact that things are contingent. They come into being, they pass away, right? Now, if you find that uh, a plausible theory, which, which I do, right, uh, then you are kind of set on this causal regress, right, this causal hunt, right, because if, if everything were of the type contingent, if everything were such that it didn't carry a sufficient reason for its existence intrinsic to itself, intrinsic to its nature, right, then nowhere in all of reality th- would there be a sufficient condition for existence, right? And that just means that nothing would exist, right? So you kind of run this hypothetical, right? If everything were of this sort of being, right, that it didn't sort of carry existence inherent to it or an in inbuilt sort of way, it always had to derive existence from some extrinsic cause or conditions or factors, right? Then a sufficient condition for being just wouldn't be anywhere, in which case nothing would exist, right? And if you think that that's obviously false, right, then what you have to say is that there has to be at least one thing, maybe more at this point, but at least one thing that is not of the type contingent, right, but is of the type necessary, right? Aquinas wouldn't necessarily use that language. He would say there would have to be something whose essence just is its existence, Mm -hmm. right? And this goes back to his... Little treatise he wrote when he was relatively young. So if you want to feel bad about your accomplishments, just realize that he made this beautiful (laughs) argument for the existence of God when he was like 29 years old without the internet or any of the technology we have right now wow uh yeah very motivational to say the least. he's he's like one of those guys i feel the same about like certain virtuoso guitar players i'm like i'm not sure this guy makes me want to practice like 12 hours a day or if i should just quit 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 completely right (laughs) i always felt that sort of way about thomas aquinas too right (laughs) generally i think he he motivates me but occasionally you're like wow he's just so far ahead like what am i It's all straw it's all straw yeah and then he says it's all straw at the end of his life right so anyways continuing on he says, all right, so if there's a being whose essence is his existence, he's going to say that it has to, be, it has to be utterly unique. It's not going to be multipliable. It can't be determined by anything because outside of existence, there's nothing. It can't be composite between a necessary part and a contingent part because then it would have to be caused. So if there is something whose essence just is his existence, it would exist necessarily because this nature would literally be to be. It's yeah. not something that could have a cause, right? It's not something that could go out of existence. It would just be to be to be to use um, the more poetic language, right? It would also have to be the sort of fundamental ultimate cause of everything else that exists because anything that sort of has existence in a derivative way would ultimately have to trace back to that that has existence in a sort of built-in way, right? And then he starts just unpacking and unloading all the divine attributes from this this, uh, simple, but in many ways that um, we haven't discussed now, extremely subtle form of argumentation, right? Aquinas thinks that, existence is convertible and convertible with actuality, active presence, power, right? So anything that just is its existence would be something that, that just is pure actuality itself, right? Has no intermingling of potency for Aquinas. He's sort of following Aristotle in this division of being between act and potency, which is used to explain how things can endure through change, right? So take me for example, there was a time when I was smaller than I am, that I had less knowledge than than I do now, but we still think I was the same being that I was before. What explains this? Well, again, I'm I'm sort of a composite, right? I'm a composite of a sort of substance, a principle of potency, um, that can endure through different configurations or actualities of being, called those call those accidents. right? So anyway, that's some some deeper Aristotelian metaphysics. But Aquinas uh, really will hold that sort of, the actuality side is convertible with the existence side, right? So any mm-hmm. being that is purely uh, that is just pure existence itself is going to be purely actual. And then from there, he's going to derive all sorts of other divine attributes because for Aquinas being is also convertible with goodness as well, that goodness just is being under the, the aspect of desirability, right? So God is going to be perfectly good. He's going to have yeah. no privations. Yeah. going And since he doesn't have any potency, there's no, there's no sort of, perfection that God doesn't already have automatically. Right. Yeah. So the reason I'm, the reason I'm just sketching this out is a lot of times people be like, okay, even if you get to some necessary first cause, you haven't proven that that's God. And I'm like, well, that's because you didn't turn the page on Aquinas. Right. Yeah. Uh You just you just like failed to read the, the enormous amount of his work especially in the where he does deduce all the yeah. divine attributes from the being that is purely actual whose essence is his existence yeah. so you get the fundamental first cause that is responsible for bringing about all possibilities of being that's omnipotence if you think that whatever is in the cause must in some way whatever is in the effect excuse me must in some way be in its total cause that's another one of those sort of causal assumptions again i think it's highly plausible if not non-negotiable And if you think we live in a world where there's certain patterns or essences or forms, well, those have to trace back to the total cause in some way, but they can't trace back in a material way because to have a sort of form contained in a material way just is to be that form in concrete reality, right? Mm -hmm. So how how else can those forms be contained? Well, they can be contained in an intentional way, like in a way that the architect has the form of a house before he builds it, right? So Aquinas moves from these commitments of essentialism that there really are forms or essences of patterns of being to them ultimately being explained in something like a transcendent intellect, the divine idea, right? So that's where he starts to get omniscience and it's important that omniscience for Aquinas, um, for classical theists is not that like god knows everything by scanning the world right god knows everything by creating the world his knowledge is executive right god knows there's a cat on the mat because god causes there to be a cat on the mat and Mm -hmm. stuff like that right Mm -hmm. so that's a that's a sketch of how aquinas moves from this simple acknowledgement of contingency of this real distinction between essence and existence to a being whose existence um whose essence just is his existence. To a being that is purely actual and then has all the divine attributes of uniqueness, omnipotence, omniscience, perfect goodness, Uh, eternity as well, because for Aquinas, uh, he's following Aristotle, Uh, time is, is really just a measure of change. And change involves the actualization of potentials, which we talked about before, right? Since God is purely and fully actual, he doesn't actualize any potencies, any intrinsic passive potencies anyways. So God is changeless. And in virtue of being changeless, he's also outside of time altogether. He's eternal. Everlasting, yes. But even stronger than that, he's eternal. He's just outside of time altogether. So yeah, how's that sound to you guys? (laughs) That sounds great, man. (laughs) You know,
0: uh, like, again, it's just getting me excited and a good book of edward phaser's i have edward phaser's book the proof for existence of god one was really good is because i know you've been on the show a few times uh matt frad's book with robert delfino right it's mm-hmm. a dialogue about the existence of god so it's like a written dialogue between an atheist and a christian girl and they're going back and forth mm-hmm. and it's like does god exist and there's so many good books. Bu- i think that's a good introduction book that does god exist Matt Fran and Robert Delfino. And then there's other books, Edward Phaser. You can go into all these other books of God. But yeah, it's so rational to me. It's like I almost don't have enough faith to be an atheist because you have the principle of sufficient reason. Mm-hmm. Do you have natural law? Like natural law needs to be taught in all the schools. It's like this will get you to have to understand it's like the unborn what are the unborn like uh should we categorize them by functions of human being is that a human being that's a right. person well then we're going to put distinctions natural law shows you like what is something like uh, people deny that they'll what mm-hmm. is that uh nominalism right where they deny well, you, things have or essence, they're denying
2: right? essentialism what we're talking yeah. about right mm-hmm.
0: things mm-hmm. have essence and you go back to like aristotle the the, the unmoved mover the motion argument for motion and all this, like, it's so rich. So I love that what you just laid out. Now, yeah. what, if you get to that, I like starting with God because mm-hmm. it's kind of hard just to jump to Jesus. You're like, Jesus rose from the dead. And they're like, well, how do, how am I, can a human being rose right from the dead? No, I no, they can't. But if there is a God, yes. What would yeah. you tell them about Jesus, res- the resurrection of Jesus
2: yeah. So there's a couple of ways you can think about this, right? You could do a, a more rigorous historical apologetic, right? And uh, I've got two uh, good friends, great philosophers, Tim and Lydia McGrew. They've got an incredible um, article in a volume called the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology mm, yeah. for the Historical Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, they're very strong. They're, they actually think that for a lot of the times, maybe not all the time. But for a lot of cases, even if somebody's an atheist, the the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is so strong that it should flip them from being an atheist to a theist, right? So mm. they would actually kind of counter what you said and say, mm. even if you don't believe in God, this is reason to believe in God. It's mm. so strong. Interesting. That isn't my general approach. I, I I'm I'm more with you, and and I'm more with you because uh, what you described is actually more of my path, right? Um, I never even really considered the resurrection claims until I had already come to believe in god because i mean in an obvious sense right if you already believe that god exists then there's not really an imprincipal miracles. miracles anymore yeah. right whereas if you're an atheist of course there's an with miracle. miracles yeah. now i think if you're an atheist and you've already committed come hell or high water there's sort of no like you're a strong human that there's like no evidence that could ever convince you the miracle occurred and flip you on that you've you've got some weird epistemology that you need to work out right because everybody should have some line where you can say, okay, if this was crossed, I would, I would consider changing my mind or change my mind or something like that. Right. So I counter a number of skeptics that are just, they need to work that out for themselves. Um, so, but no, I I'm with you in the, in the sense that, uh, if you already think that God exists, the way I like to think about it is this, right. Given classical theism, it's, it's, it's hard to articulate, the entire case, because it's so, it's so deep. There's such a system here. And if people ask me, what's your favorite argument for God, it's not really an argument. It's a system, right? It's a, it's a, it's a metaphysics, a way of making sense of reality as a whole, that once you kind of unfold all the commitments just entail the existence of God. Right. And to Mm -hmm. me, that's that, that's a Thomistic worldview, but that system has a lot of other commitments. It has commitments about what goodness is, what being is, what human beings are And it's understanding that entire system that I think when you understand that entire system, it it shines a really strong light that says, like, hey, look at me on the Catholic Church and Christianity. I'll give you a couple ways that that I've thought about it and continue to think about it, right? Okay. So so one is this, right? If you think that God exists and is perfectly good, which we just gave some reasons to think that that is the case – uh, and, and, you, and you also think that the nature of goodness is sort of self-diffusive and it, and it's sort of self-communicative. It seeks to, to communicate itself and draw things to itself, right? That's sort of inherent in the very nature of goodness, right? This is a very traditional commitment of, of what goodness is going back to the pagans, but certainly adopted by Christian thinkers like St. Thomas Aquinas, right? Okay, so God's perfectly good, right? And keep that notion of that commitment of goodness in mind. And also just say that you think, something went wrong in this world, right? That something like original sin has happened, which by the way, is obviously a core commitment of Catholicism, but like the pagans kind of had an idea of this as well. Like Plato, even Plato thought like, yeah, something, something happened, right? Something, something went wrong. Something screwy here, right? Um, something hmm. went wrong. Okay. Now, if you think those two things are the case, right? Then it might not be surprising that God would, would work towards some sort of redemption some sort of reunification with himself, some sort of reordering, some proper resetting, if you will, right? And then what I want to say is the incarnation just stands out in such a beautiful, obvious way. Like, of course, this is God's work. Why? Because by assuming a human nature, God not only brings us um, back into union with himself or provides the means of coming back into union with himself, But he also does it by becoming one of us, by literally uniting via the hypostatic union with us. I mean, what could be more profound of a notion of of perfect goodness than that, right? I mean, that just seems like, oh, yeah, of course that's right. Given my metaphysics, of course that's what happened, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the – that like maybe I wouldn't have predicted it from my worldview hypothesis that it would happen exactly like that. But since I see that data on the ground of people claiming that that is what happened – I should see that as the obvious, most fitting use. Aquinas is big on the fittingness, right? So that this is a fittingness argument, and that's what I would say. That to me, what is most convincing, are not like the hardcore historical apologetics. I think they're good, but the sheer fittingness of it—it's like a masterpiece that's so that's so beautiful that of course God did it, right? And if you already believe in God and have these commitments, you get to something like the claims of the incarnation. And I just, I think you can't look away.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
2: If if that makes sense, right?
0: No, that's a good, that makes perfect sense. That's a good point. I never really thought of it like that. I usually do go the historical route. And, but that is true. Like, Hey, there's these Christians we've been around for 2000 years. How did they just come about? There has to be something, but that's a point that I'm going to have to chew on because I never thought of it like that. So you got me something. You got me interested in it. well, you know, it, 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 interested. It, Was that a word? Interested. Yes. Interesting. But
1: as as a as a producer, the story structure is very important, right? And I'm thinking about credibility and the historic and all the stuff you guys are talking about. I've what's always your
0: motivation. It, Jesus. All right, Jesus, what's your, your motivation, motivation? Is this? <laughs> well, like the, the, mo-
1: the the motivation for belief uh comes to me uh in a very simple, sort of overlooked part of the story of of jesus's resurrection and that is that mary the mother of jesus and mary magdalene who we know had been a prostitute before she met jesus are the two women that we are asked to believe in the bible were the ones who went to the tomb to found and found it empty okay when they went to go look for for a, a jesus's tomb somebody had moved the hundred pound uh, or thousand pound rock and and, and it was empty why would you do that why would you why would you tell a story in that way if you're going to try to find yeah. credibility because back then women no, were not looked at as credible much less witnesses yeah uh, they were not looked at the same so no I, no I i find that sort of interesting and fascinating within the context of everything you guys are talking about and within the those, those sprinkles of yeah of godliness that are in there mm. like that's that's sort of fascinating right like why right. wouldn't it,
0: you write the gospels like some obscure oh luke who's oh luke is a companion of like why not just put this is the gospel of john this is the gospel of of, of all the other any of the other which uh, you find apostles, in the later right? forgeries right you yeah. do find
2: those in the later forgeries. yeah the boss, um,
0: peter and all this stuff like what? Yeah. why not do that but i'm still stuck on dusty just saying like producing like i imagine he goes to jesus like all right jesus okay you're the son of man you're gonna get betrayed <laughs> by your best friend so you're you're conflicted you want this cup to pass but then you accept it and god's will be done i could just imagine dusty there okay so continue but i want to say this that brings us to the third the church mm-hmm. the catholic right. church mm-hmm. so what would you say to establish that jesus christ established a church not right. that that all you be separate or the ch- go to the churches not not fried chicken go to the church take it to the churches no he says right. jesus take it to the church what would you say that right. the catholic church was established by jesus christ
2: yeah. So let me, let me acknowledge that. I agree with everything you guys are saying that if you want to do the more hardball historical apologetic, I think you can definitely. And like, that was a big part of my conversion, like yeah. seeing that historical credibility, um, was extremely moving to me. Right. Cause it fit with what I would argue the worldview that I have was predicting. Right. And at that point you just, I think you just have to say, yeah, this is, this is obviously right. Amen. So, yeah. And I'm going to say the same thing about, the historical case for the catholic church but i want to keep pushing the philosophical perspective because i think mm, again this was love it so big for me and most people are you know familiar with the general historical apologetics at least i take them to be because it's the usual approach and again important for my conversion but it, philosophy did a lot more work for me it seems yeah. and, um maybe but that makes sense that's my background right um mm-hmm. So let's think now about human anthropology within the Thomistic system. Mm-hmm. What, what are we? Well, we're rational animals. Yeah, that's right. But we're more than that. We're rational, social, political animals, as Aristotle does tell us in the Nicomachean yeah. Ethics, who, for our knowledge, our upbringing, everything, depend on institution and authority, right? They depend I, on institution. I thought that's where you're going. All right. So, okay, great. Now, if we think that God is going to to... Reveal something, right? And that revelation is going to be transmitted, especially effectively, right? Well, we would expect that another principle of classical theism is that God works with things according to their nature. God is not just a wise creator. He's a wise governor, right? He might make the the occasional donkey talk because it's appropriate providentially, but generally that's not going to be the case. (laughs) This is why miracles are exceptions, not rules, right? Mm. Well, God works with us according to our nature as well, including epistemologically, right? So if God is going to reveal something, it's not surprising that he would do it in a sort of system or institution if you will that has hierarchy and ultimately authority right where the sort of the sort of buck stops here chief executive right we naturally organize towards these things anyways we see them all throughout the old testament not surprising right I would go further and say, like, especially to assure that things don't go off the rails, as we know they can often do with institutions. Just look at our government today. Right. (laughs) And given the importance of revelation that we don't go off the rails, at least on core matters of faith and morals, it would make sense that we get something like the doctrine of indefectibility, which would then extend to the doctrine of people infallibility. So what you would expect, I would say, given a good metaphysics, philosophical anthropology and the assumptions of revelation, is exactly what the church is, right? That's exactly what the Catholic Church is. And then you add the historical apologetics on top of that, and the biblical arguments. And again, I think it's, I think it's case closed. So I'm just emphasizing the philosophical aspect because I think that that almost never gets talked about. But for me, I find, I probably find that most convincing. Honestly, yeah. now it's always a package deal. You consider all the different evidences and weights. But the the, the philosophical work, the philosophical mm-hmm. anthropology, the epistemology, yeah. the metaphysics, the philosophy of God to me just always just points so strongly to the catholic church being if not uh the obviously true religion really the only option that makes sense at the end of the day right well the Protestantism Protestantism is, is so ridiculously individualistic right it seems so i was gonna say it's so out of out of uh harmony with human nature altogether that it just seems obviously i mean forget the the other issues with sola scriptura and stuff like that it just it just just seems wrong right on a level of of philosophical anthropology right that's what i I was
0: going to say the anthropology is like how the study of man like how how are we made by nature like you were saying it's like yeah don't leave me to myself if you're just a here here's this bible just do tell me what you think it is like don't i don't trust myself Don't leave me to myself because then you're going to have literally you give a thousand people a Bible. You might have a thousand different interpretations or even if it's 500, like it just doesn't make any sense how. Yeah, of course, if you just read this Bible and don't have no magisteria, you don't have tradition, you don't have the Pope. Like you're just going to make up whatever you want. You're going to make yourself a God or make yourself your own teaching. It just makes sense. Also, the sacraments matter matters matter matters
2: yeah two great points one is that like even in the example you gave you're you're in the the tradition of interpreting for yourself right so you can't escape tradition you can't escape institution and you can't escape authority right so let's just try and get those things right and i think you do it Points strongly towards uh, catholicism and then yeah sacramentality again is huge why because we are physical material beings right god works with us according to what we are so the fact that he would give us physical signs of a deeper reality really fits in accords with human nature as well. Again, it's just fittingness for me so much, so much fittingness. Um, I call those, you know, again, are they deductive proofs? Like the metaphysical arguments for God? No, but they're really strong motives of credibility yeah. is how I would like yeah. to say it.
0: The right? sacraments yeah. it's like, we're God knows he, he made the car. We, we read the manual. He knows how we work. We need to hear those words of absolution. We need to feel the oil. We need to feel the water. Like it helps us just as a, uh, like, as a, uh, how we work, how we tick, and it's like in the Old Testament, you see it is uh God tells Moses and Aaron bring your staff, bring your staff, uh hit the water why did why couldn't God just make the water? why do he have to get the staff, or when Moses is praying and they're losing his arms he's like oh God oh, my shoulders are killing me, and mm-hmm. his arm gets lower, they start losing, they have to raise like that Matt, why do those material things matter or the snake the bronze snake, why did Jesus why did God have to do that like It makes sense. It's like, because we're material creatures, Um, man, that, that was a great, those three from God, Jesus, and the Catholic church are incredible. Uh, We start to wrap up slowly.
1: What are you working on, Pat? What are, what's going on with you right now that we want to point to maybe have people pay attention to? Where can they find you. you?
2: Lots of stuff. So I actually have a book with Catholic answers that I submitted the manuscript with not too long ago. I'm writing that with my friend, Dr. Gavin Kerr. That's on Aquinas's De Ente, which we gave a tease of mm. here and his five ways. So we kind of nice. set out his De Ente, and then we say, Hey, look, use the De Ente as a sort of lens to understand his five yeah. ways. Uh, so that's in their hands. Um, at this point, there'll be some editing and I'm not sure when the release of that will be. I've got another book with Sophia. Um called the best argument for god where i'm trying to reverse uh what is often called the best argument against god which says if two Evil. theories uh, no actually i oh. don't think i don't think that is um, or at least not with some atheists um philosophically it's not yeah emotionally it is but not philosophically yeah philosophical. it's 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 too um I mean, it's it, it, I play off Thomas Aquinas because he was so ahead of the game, you know, in his Summa, mm. when he considers arguments God's existence, he only considers two, which is unusual for Aquinas because he usually considers like a fifty lot. million objections. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the two arguments he considers is the problem of evil, Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Important. Important to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other one is really uh, the argument that God is a, is a superfluous uh, explanatory posit, right? You don't need Mm. God. The principles of nature are enough. And now in modern Mm. days, you'll get a formulation of that, which would say something like this, right? If two theories explain just as much, believe the simpler atheism and theism explain just as much believe atheism. There you go. Right. Uh, but atheism is simpler. Therefore believe atheism. Sorry. I forgot that extra step. And my book is intent on reversing that argument. Uh, I'm, Mm. I'm saying, uh, atheism can only explain some of what theism can, but not all when strapped with a vastly greater complexity. And therefore you should believe theism. So that's what that project is about. And we'll have aspects of the contingency argument that actually be a significant part of it, but also uh, uh, the explanatory difficulties naturalism face in consciousness, moral reasoning, moral values, more nice as well. And showing that in order for them, they even kind of keep up in the explanatory race with theism, they have to construct increasingly ad hoc, complex and utterly implausible worldview theories to do that. So that's what that book is with Sophia right now. Uh, hopefully maybe uh, an early 2023 release, but I can't say for sure. In the meantime, people can keep up with me. The most relevant channel would be my Philosophy for the People channel over on YouTube that I co-host with my my uh, friend, Dr. Jim Madden. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, Philosophy that's great. for the People. For we the will people. have that in the our people. show
1: notes so mm-hmm. that yeah. people can find you uh, rather yes, easily. For sure. Pat, it, it's been an absolute oh, blessing for us to have you on, and and I yes. know that the audience has also gotten a lot from this. We we can't get enough of you. So at some point when you've got the books out, will you come back?
2: Oh, of course, oh, guys. This be has awesome. been a blast. I would love to chat with you guys anytime. Yep. All just right, give man. me just give me an excuse. I'll be here. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, before man, we wrap so up, much.
0: I want to say one thing. I just got an idea for like an awesome movie. Oh, here Steve we go. Pitches, pitches. Yeah, Hollywood connections. Okay, me and Pat Flynn, right? We switch bodies. It's like Freaky Friday, okay? Because, like I said, how he's the I'm the multi version of him who didn't get off the couch. Yeah, so we switch bodies. All right, it's it's a comedy. Like it's a full Catholic comedy. No, no, but hey, you're honestly Pat. Pat and Dusty also, my new co-host, like you guys motivate me and I'm starting to do that. We talked about creating possibilities. And so I- I'm getting That's... there. I'm getting there. No more Dr. Strange, weird, multi That t- Y'all, y'all two motivate me. I love you all spirit. Patrick Flint, thank you for coming on the show. Loved you. This is incredible. I am Roger. And I'm Dusty. Thanks. Faith, Reason, and Geekdom. Also subscribe, share, Spotify, Apple. Do all the things, you know, all the things you need to do. Please push us out there. We would really appreciate it. God bless and Godspeed. Good night. Thank you, guys.